Chapter Eleven of An Exchange of Souls by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. Naturally, Myas was a good deal in my mind during these months. Again and again I recalled his definite and boastful promise that before the year was out he would demonstrate to me the existence of a human soul, of which mind and body were but the concomitants. Great had been his enthusiasm. Everything had been made to give way to his work. He had risked both life and love for it. He had looked forward with the utmost confidence to the day of his experiment. He had told me that it would revolutionize thought, that it would make a new heaven and a new earth. Had the experiment succeeded, his claim would perhaps have been justified. And now, all the years of work, all the ambition and ability, had ended in a little heap of dust in an oak casket. And things went on as before. I still insisted upon believing in Miss Lade's innocence, and if she were indeed innocent, then it seemed bitter that so much should have been wrecked by so little, by a flaw in a piece of mechanism, or by one careless moment in Myas himself. One or two obituary notices had appeared. That in the Lancet was brief, but peculiarly admirable. Without taking back one word that had been said about Myas's pamphlet, it still found much to praise in him and its expression of regret that he had not lived to complete his researches seemed both decent and genuine. It has occasionally been my lot to read obituary notices of those whom I have known personally, and I have read them always with a kind of surprise. I have never recognized in them the men that I knew. This may be because it is the important part of them which figures in the obituary, and the characteristic trifles which one has grown to like or dislike are omitted. Certainly no one could have reconstructed Daniel Myas from his obituary notice. His work was there, but the man himself was not. After all, it would have been difficult to give a picture of him. The strange blend of serious strength and amusing weaknesses is common enough and human enough, but it is difficult to make it seem real. There was much that was rather morbid in this business of Myas and Alice Lade, and I was not sorry when, early in October, another subject occurred to occupy my mind. An old friend of mine, coming rather late in life into possession of the family archives, chanced upon a manuscript diary relating in part to the Peninsular War. The rather absurd idea occurred to him that I was just the man to edit it for publication, and I'm afraid I was too vain to put the idea aside at once. I said that I would at any rate read this diary. I did read it, and I found it extremely interesting. It was filled, however, with things which I did not understand, and illusions which I could not follow. I thought I had just an average knowledge of eighteenth-century history, but average knowledge was of very little use here. I was driven to the British Museum and to other libraries. I think I may say that I consider the joy of clearing up a difficult point in an old personal history to be one of the purest and noblest that I have ever known. One sunny day, more like midsummer than October, 
I had spent the whole morning in the British Museum, and afterwards had lunched at the club. I had been rather successful that morning, and had several excellent notes to add to my edition of that diary, if ever I undertook it. I went back to St. James's Place immediately after luncheon in order to get to work again. I let myself into the flat with my latch key and found on the table in the hall a registered letter in a foolscap envelope. It was addressed to me in a handwriting which, if I had not known him to be dead, I could have sworn to as the handwriting of Daniel Myas. One obvious explanation occurred to me. It might actually be his writing. It might be some letter which he had left in the care of Alice Lade, with instructions to forward it to me at this interval after his death. I was on the point of opening it when my man came out and told me that a person giving the name of Mrs. Lade had called to see me. "'Is she here now?' I asked. "'Well, yes, sir. She said that she knew you very well and seemed so insistent that I allowed her to wait. Will you see her, sir, or shall I send her away?' "'I'll see her. Show her into my study.' I put the letter down on the table in my study with the address downwards. Mrs. Lade would also have recognized the handwriting and would probably have found it very upsetting. She was easily upset. She was well dressed in deep mourning and seemed rather embarrassed by her clothes and by the situation in which she now found herself. As she struggled towards speech, I told her I was sorry I had been out when she called and that she had had to wait. "'That did not matter in the least, sir. I had expected to wait. I have been made quite comfortable and had the Times newspaper.' "'What's more to the point,' I said, "'is have you had any lunch?' "'Oh, yes, sir,' she said. "'Yes, Mr. Compton, I've lunched.' Here, suddenly and without warning, Mrs. Lade burst into tears. I dislike tears. I have the feeling, which is perhaps rather selfish, that people should not weep when I am present. However, I tried to be sympathetic and to find out what was the matter. The floodgates of her speech were now wide open. But some little time elapsed before I could rescue anything like a coherent story out of the torrent. She repeated over and over again that nothing had been the same since the death of Daniel Myas. She asked tragically what daughters were for. She said that she had always been respectable, as anybody in Knox Street would tell me. Friends in Knox Street had been kind to her under trying circumstances. She informed me that she was not a good sailor, far from it. She gave me, with more minuteness than delicacy, the details of the disease of which poor Willie's wife died, long before I found out that Willie was her brother in New York. Gradually and patiently I drew out all the facts and pieced them together. The thing which was affecting Mrs. Lade most was the great change which had taken place in her daughter. In the matter of money, Alice was apparently generous. "'I can buy what I like and go where I like. Cabs I take frequently. If it wasn't for this sacred time of mourning, 
I might be sitting in the theater every evening in the week. And I should enjoy it, too, for it takes you out of yourself. But it appeared that Alice showed her mother very little affection and was seldom with her. During the greater part of her time, she was shut up in the workroom in which Myas died. She refused to see any of her friends in Knox Street, and Mrs. Lade was tired of making one excuse after another to them. She spoke very little to anybody, and although she caught cold sitting late in that laboratory, and although it had affected her voice, she had refused to allow her mother to nurse her at all. "'Different altogether she is,' sobbed Mrs. Lade. "'And ammoniated quinine she simply refuses to look at.' At this juncture a letter had arrived from Mrs. Lade's widowed brother in New York. He had a house and children, and he needed someone to look after them. His experiences with paid housekeepers had not been encouraging. Some of them, he said, were sniffy and superior and incompetent. Some of them drank, and some of them desired him to marry them. He appealed to Mrs. Lade and her daughter to come over and live with him. Mrs. Lade showed me this letter, and I was rather surprised that it could have been written by her brother. In spite of the fact that she was a bad sailor, the idea had appealed to Mrs. Lade. She had relinquished her shop now, because there was no necessity to keep it on. I should imagine the income derived from it had never been very attractive. At the same time, Mrs. Lade was a woman who liked to have an occupation. Added to which, she said, they tell me America's a nice place. She had put the matter before her daughter, and her daughter's decision had grievously distressed her. Mrs. Lade was certainly to go to live with her brother. It was her duty. All the money that was wanted for her outfit and passage would be forthcoming, and on her arrival in New York she would receive a sufficient income to provide for her in comfort and independence. Thus, if she and the widowed Willie did not happen to hit it off together, she would be free to employ her activities elsewhere. Alice had urged, almost ordered, her to go. But at the same time, Alice definitely refused to accompany her. She said that she was continuing the work which she had begun with Daniel Myas, and that this made it impossible for her to leave England. Tears and persuasions had seemed to have no effect on her. I tried to get Mrs. Lade to see the thing from another point of view. Alice's resolve to continue that work was really a kind of loyalty to the dead man. But Mrs. Lade was not to be convinced. If she would promise to come out a year after me, or even two years, I could be satisfied. It's the separation forever that is hard for me to face. But when I speak to her about it, she gives that quick little wave of the hand, same as the poor doctor always did when you annoyed him about anything. And I don't know that I've told you the worst yet. The worst proved to be that for three days Mrs. Lade had not even seen her daughter. Do you know where she has gone? I asked. "'Gone? She's not gone. She's still there. 
she has the rooms that were his now and her time is spent between them and the workshop and most of it in the workshop do you know mr compton that i've had doors locked against me in my own house do you know that she doesn't even take her meals with anything like regularity a few words scrawled on a scrap of paper that's all i've had from her these last three days i'll tell you what i think about it well i asked mrs lade tapped her forehead significantly that to the best of my belief is what is the matter with her there has been no history of it in my family but as mrs porter was saying to me in knox street only this morning grief may overturn the mind if i had had any feeling of confidence in that vulsame i should have called him in expense being no longer a consideration but there what use would it have been if i had it's twenty to one she would have refused to see him i thought this extremely likely the conduct of alice was becoming more and more inexplicable to me however the absurdity of Volsame's suspicions seemed to be demonstrated by it and i was rather ashamed that the same suspicions had occurred to my own mind a woman who had murdered myas would not care to shut herself up in the rooms which he had occupied and in the laboratory where he had died alice lade had always had a simple natural affection for her mother this had apparently vanished the desire for solitude was remarkable there were points in her behavior when i met her at the instrument makers which had seemed to me curious i knew too how great her devotion to myas had been it was quite possible that as a result of his death her mind had given way i sympathized with the poor old woman and did the best i could to console her i promised that i would myself go and see alice i would talk things over with her and if i found that she was ill i thought i could use my authority sufficiently to persuade her to see a doctor i think that when old mrs lade left me she was much comforted by what i had said in my own mind i felt far from sure that alice would see me and wondered what my next move ought to be in that case when my visitor had gone i picked up that letter from the table and tore open one end of it something fell from it with a metallic little tinkle and i picked it up it was the latchkey to the garden entrance in durnford place end of chapter eleven